It's Monday. And on Monday, one has perpetually and almost traditionally fingered the beads of despair and has recounted ancient wars, has looked back over old traditional defeats, and has concerned himself, if he be the right sort of person, with the things of perhaps more the essential spirit rather than the external chromium and enameled covering, pod, external. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I'm reading The Education of Henry Adams. Now, uh, education is a, is a very difficult subject to approach with any degree of subjectivity uh, as opposed to objectivity. It all, it all mixes up into, you know, kind of a, a, a sort of a rice pudding, you know, with floating, with floating raisins. And you don't know where to start, whether to spoon it or whether to, whether to just lap at it or, or just leave it go. Now, I'm, I'm also, in addition to reading The Education of Mr. Adams, I noticed today, speaking of education, and it's all part of the same thing, I noticed an ad for a game. And this, this game says, the ad says, uh, teach your children the facts of life. Teach them how to live the life that they will be living later on. And the name of the game is uh, Diner's Club Card. Yeah, it's a, it's a game, you know, it says, learn to live on credit, spend big money, go to Europe, have a big vacation, live big and dangerously, buy a Ferrari, and it'll all be fun and the kids will learn about life. No, this is the truth now. I'm not, I'm not putting you on. It says it's an educational game. They say that very seriously. Now, it is actually, you know, in a sort of sinister way. Well, now, how did you learn how to be you? Now, I think there are at least two kinds of education, as uh, George Ade put it, uh, at least. There's the one kind of education, you know, where people teach you about isosceles triangles. Now, how long has it been since you've dealt with a program and a problem in isosceles triangles? There, there is the education, you know, where they teach you about the Battle of Hastings. Well, now, ever since I left Miss Breifogel's history class, no one has once asked me about the Battle of Hastings. Not once. I have not had to refer to it more than maybe two or three hundred times since that day. Now, uh, <laughs> and all the way down the line, you know, this is one kind of education, but there is another kind of education, and it's the greatest, wildest kind of education, and it's the kind of education that made me, me. And you have your own, you know, the thing that made you, you. What is it that makes one guy skulk behind the radiator? somewhere in some little office, a dusty little office in Teaneck, New Jersey, just just shaking all the time. He's down there behind the radiator. He's, he, he, they're not going to pry him out of there. He's been here at this lumber yard for, it's been 70 years now, and they're not going to get him out. What made him that way? When another guy went on to become Zeckendorf. Isosceles triangles? No. Quadratic equations? The Battle of Hastings? <laughs> Well, let me tell you, I'm this kid, you see, one time. This is one of those milestones that you pass that you don't realize until 400 years later that you have passed it and there's no going back. And it's in the Depression, see. It's in the last stages of the Depression. And all I can remember for years as a kid, you know, every, every year there is, a, there is a cartoon on the front page of the Chicago American, which was a peach-colored paper. They even had a peach edition. 
It was a very peachy newspaper in a lot of ways, if you know anything about Chicago papers. They, they, they were against two things. Uh, they were against Democrats and vivisection. And uh, at times it was difficult to tell which one they were talking about in the columns there. It was the same thing. Well, that was the Chicago... It was a Hearst paper, you see. And they always had a big cartoon that was done by somebody named Burris Jenkins. And this cartoon showed the new year coming in. And this new year was this little cherub, you know, and he had this big thing across the front of him. And it would say, oh, I don't know, whatever the year was, 1938 or 1936. And a big thing would be across his, his gut there. And you would see, going out on the other side, you would see old, old man, whatever the year before was, you know, all defeated and shaking. And he's got this... This, this, this lantern, and he's shaking his way out, old ancient father time defeated. And in the background, you see this guy with this tall black hat, this long, thin, blue-nosed face. And on the back of his coat, it was marked depression. And over it, it would say, the victor again. <laughs> and then underneath it, in, in a little subtitle, it would say, will this new young challenger meet that heavyweight and take him on his own terms? Will he beat the depression? Well, I'm this kid, see, so I'm brought up in this atmosphere. No, was, uh, all, all the time it was this way. Well, one day, it's June. Now, it's going to be June for a lot of you kids. Now, I want you to listen to this. Listen well. It's going to be June for a lot of you kids in just a few weeks. As it always has been June for kids for centuries over. And it was once June for me, too. And it's June, and I have just I have just finished my freshman year in high school. I am veritably a bud <laughs> on that thorny rose bush of life, ready to ready to pop those those petals outward to reach for the sun, uh, to, to to drink in the elixir, the the veritable dew of of passion and existence. There I am, hanging there crammed with my head full of isosceles triangles. I had just finished a year of algebra, and I was very good on quadratic equations. Very good. Mr. Settlemeyer was very proud that I made it. And I had, I had completed all the various... Yeah, I, was, I was beginning to absorb this thing of what it was about, this education. And it's now spring. It's June. It's the Depression. And, and I'll tell you another thing about it uh, that has to be said parenthetically that the sun was very bright and, and the wind was very was very windy in those days and the tumbleweeds tumbled they really did and streetcars roared and the lake boomed on the shore and, and living beside a great lake when the spring comes is a very exciting thing it's not quite like it is living next to the ocean because the ocean you know tempers the season like like the lakes don't. And the lakes are very cold in the springtime. And you can feel that hot wind coming up from the south, and it hits that, that cold air hanging over the lake, and it'd be beautiful, just just cataclysmic June thunder showers that would come from those two those two pieces of air hitting. And they would all come right down where we lived, right there at the dividing line. And on the one side there would be dogwood and the tulip trees blooming. You know, the, the state flower of Indiana is the tulip tree. And so there would be the tulip trees hanging over there in the dunes and the dogwood climbing up the side of the hills and those big, fantastic thunder showers would come roaring down. It's springtime. My God, it's really spring. You knew it. 
And that, that, that ice that grips that, that part of the country had broken and cracked away a few weeks before. And now it was, it was, it was alive again. Things were moving. You could hear it. And that, always another thing that you'd hear in the springtime, you'd hear the very beginnings. Oh, frogs. I cannot describe to you the sound of the frogs at, at 8, 9 o'clock at night in June in northern Indiana. Just like, it's like the whole, the whole earth is singing and making this one long warbling note just going on and on and on. Okay, you got the picture. All right, I'm this kid, see, and the sap is flowing. And I've already got the sense of guilt that all 14-year-old kids have got. I mean, guilt about all kinds of things, terrible thoughts that would go through my head. I'll never forget one time when Esther Jane Albury went up to the front of the class, in the history class. It was the first time a thought like that went through my head, and I, I swatted it like a fly. Awful thing suddenly popped out. It had 26 legs right out in my head there. Had a, had a big black mustache and was chewing tobacco. This thing, this thought came out and was spitting all over the place. And I, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I wasn't with it. We were, we were studying, I don't know what it was, Richard the Lionheart, and all of a sudden I was looking at Esther Jane Albury and the way I had never looked at her before. Oi. Whew. It was spring. She had on a flowered dress, and she was silhouetted against the light. Incredible. It was unbelievable, you see. I, these, these are things... I have never lost my wonder about that either. I don't think most men ever do, you know. As long, as long as we're going to lay it on the line here. You, you, have you, you have this feeling, men, <laughs> that you never are quite over the, the surprise and the amazement that there are things like chicks? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, you know, it, it's, it's always a surprise that, the, that this great thing was there, you know. This, this chick was there, you know, it's a funny thing. Well, anyway, there I am, you see. I'm this kid, and I'm, I'm really, you know, really beginning to feel it. And so we're out of school. And kids, you know, were beginning to do the things that kids do after school, you know, ball and baseball and all the jazz going on. We go to the beach when suddenly a rumor got out that they're looking for people at the Strawby Piano Place and they're hiring kids to be apprentices or apprenti. I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it a, is it a plural of apprentices, apprenti? Anyway, they, there was a word, you know, a job. Well, a job, I, I can't tell you what a job was like in the depression. A job is, is just a... It's an unbelievable thing, you know. And so about 15 of us went down to this place. We arrived at this little little office in front of this long wooden plant, and they made pianos there. We go into the little office, and all of us are trooping in. We're all 14 years old. And the guy says, yes, that is true. We are looking for some young men that we'd like to train to be apprentices in the piano business, which meant they'd like to get kids to work for nothing. But you have to have a work permit. So if any of you got a work permit, you can fill out the forms. If you don't have a work permit, go down to the Indiana State Employment Bureau and get a work permit because kids that are under 16 got to get a work permit. You can, you can work if you're over 14, but you got to get a work permit. Go get a work permit. Well, so we all turned around. We never heard of this, you know. We all turned around. We go back, and we find out where the Indiana State Employment Service is, and the whole bunch of us, the whole ball team, by the way, was a softball team en masse, went to, <laughs> went to this place, and we're all sitting in there, and they're giving us the... You know, they ask us what school we go to, how old we are, take this thing home and get your mother to sign it, and all that business. Of course, this is getting to be very interesting because it was the first time in my life outside of school that I was filling out forms. It was another historical moment. I didn't realize that it was to be an endless succession of forms from there on end. Would you like to see all the forms you have ever filled out in your life all piled up? And, uh, and the forms that you had in the Army and all the little things that your name is on? 
when all the chips are in and all the all the all the checks have been cashed and all the dinner pails have been emptied and you're there and there are your forms piled up next to you your poor little rotten gone bones nothing left but all these requisitions all the shoes that you tried to get all the field jackets that you made weak attempts to have repaired all of it all of it all of it there all the work permits all the stuff piled up one after the other speaking of stuff this is WORAM and FM New York we'll be here till midnight well, a couple of days pass, and I go home, and I take this thing that my mother is supposed to sign out. Now, this is about education. Don't lose sight of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about nostalgia. We're not going to talk about penny candy. So don't call up and say, ask Mr. Shepard if he remembers Mary Janes. I am not interested in Mary Janes, nor flexible flyers, nor mumbly peg. Okay? So anyway... I, I take this thing home, and I show it to my mother, and I say, I got this work permit, Ma... And I, I'm going to try to get a job at the Strawberry Piano Company. She's going to get a job. I'm just get 14, you know. And, and uh, up to that time, you know, I'd been selling colliers and that stuff and had had a paper route. I'm getting a real job now. She says, a work permit. Let me see that. She reads it. She says, you have to be 14. Okay. She says, all right, I'll sign it. So she signed it. She was amused. Just a little vague amusement about this thing. So she signed it. And that afternoon, boy, I take the streetcar, I'm in that place, and I'm slapping it down. I want my work permit. Do you know that I've still got that work permit? I mean, it's a funny thing. I've st <laughs> still got it. You never want to let go of security once you get it. And so I take this thing back, and I go back to the strawberry plant, and there were about 14 of us all finally lined up there. And believe it or not, out of the 14 kids, they selected four of us to work in the piano factory. And guess whose name led all the rest like Abu Ben Adams? Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes, there I was. Me and Paul, Bullis, and Flick. All four of us got jobs now. And they, they take us into the, into the employment man, and he says, well, all right, now. Takes a look at each one of us. And I was the biggest kid. Paul was the littlest kid. Flick was in between, and Bullis was short and squat like a fire plug. And so he... <laughs> He assigned, yeah, he assigned us each one to our different departments. He says, you're going to go down. He says, I want you to go down. And he says, I want you to work for Zudok. Mr. Zudok, he points to me. Mr. Zudok works down in the back department. And you're going to work with Mr. Zudok for a while. And I want you to listen very carefully to what Mr. Zudok says. Because Mr. Zudok has a very important job here. And you're going to learn that job. And one day you'll be able to do those things that Mr. Zudok can do. Now, are you ready to go? And of course, all we want to know is how much money do we get. We want to know this. We want to know all these things about Because a job is a, is a very abstract thing to a kid. It's just a job, you know. It doesn't work. It's a job. And so, finally, it comes out. They were going to pay us nine ninety a week because we were apprentices. $9.90 a week, and we were to work from 8 o'clock in the morning to 4.30 at night every day. And on Saturday, we were to come in at 8 o'clock in the morning and work till 12.30. We were to work six days a week. And I was to work for Mr. Zudok down in the back department. Paul was working in the place where they finished the tops of pianos, you know, where they put that glaze and all that varnish and stuff on them. Bolus, because he was short and squat, was in the action department. As soon as they said, "Here, you're going to the action department, everyone felt real this, this feeling of real jealousy about Bolus. Because action sounded great. Well, action is just when they put the guts of the piano in, you know. And because he was short and squat, he could get underneath it and hold the handles down when they pulled it in. So, and then 
No, no, just a minute now. This is about education. It is not about the piano factory. I do not want to tell you about making pianos, which I know about now, which I do not wish to discuss. So that afternoon, I'm down there with Zudok, Mr. Zudok, who was a thin man like a crow. And these men, I have to preface one little note here with the, with the piano world. These men were handmade piano people. They had all come over from Germany. Have you ever heard of the Strabe Piano Company? S-T-R-A-B-E. Well, it's a famous old German piano. And these were old German workmen. And everything in that factory was hand done. They would rub and rub and rub with this emery, and they would rub jeweler's paste, and they would rub all kinds of powders and elixirs into these pianos until they just gleamed beyond, absolutely beyond belief. They were beautiful. But there was a funny feeling in the air. There was a feeling of, of almost indescribable age. There was a feeling of of timelessness, and I had never run into this before. As a kid, of course, in school, there's a feeling of movement. There's a feeling of, of, of going forward from the sixth grade to the seventh grade, or from eighth grade into ninth grade, from this season into that season. But there was no season in the piano factory, and there was no time in the piano factory, and all the men were very, very old men. I'm sure they don't make pianos like this anymore. And they don't, of course, I'm also sure that most of these men must be dead because almost every one of them was way up in his 60s and 70s at that time. Very, very old men who would sit for hours and just quietly polish away on the top of a grand piano. Two of them would work painstakingly. And then they would take out their glasses. They had big jeweler's glasses and they would shine lights and they would work more and more and more. And they'd work and work and work. This is not a kid world. It's not even an American world, you know. We don't, we don't do things that way. And all these men had, had European accents. They had all come from Germany, but they were from all over. Some of them were Poles, some of them were Czechoslovakians, but they were all old piano makers who knew nothing else but pianos. And all the day long, this, this piano factory would ring with the sound down in the tuning department. You'd ding, 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 dong, 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 ding, dong, ding, dong. And then you'd hear a drill press going, ding, 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 ding. This is the way it was all day long, but in a quiet way. It wasn't like the steel mill. It was like a lot of people, elves or something, all quietly making little things and chipping away. And you could smell that magnificent smell of wood. Oh, they used beautiful woods in this place. They would use walnut and teak and ebony. Have you ever smelled raw ebony? It's a very peculiar smell. And once in a while, they would, they would use this aged, this aged, very, very old English walnut that would come in. And it would be all knurled and, and gnarled. And th then once in a while, they'd get this, they'd get this wood, some, uh, a, very, a very tough, hard Philippine wood that I, I don't even know the name of it. But it's a, it's a, it's a color almost like, like, oh, like, like coffee that has a very thick cream in it. Beautiful wood with a tiny grain. And they would polish it and polish it and polish it and carve it with little tools, all sorts of hand tools and little, little electric drills. Beautiful work, but the smells, the smells of the shellac. And I was way down at the end where we made the backs. Now, if you take a look at a piano, I would suggest there's two kinds of backs. <laughs> I can tell you technically what backs are like. On the back is hung the lyre or the harp. This is, this is just a bridge, really. The, have you ever seen that big long, sweeping, S-curved piece of wood that lays on the bottom of a piano and is hung there, and upon that is hung the action. Well, my job was to lay that 
that big S-shaped piece of wood on the back, which came as a, as a large, raw chunk of plywood, which I sanded down, I would measure, I would lay the S down, I would drill it out, I would flip it over, and then I would put the braces, which are longitudinal braces, you know, that, that sort of cut, cut the back of a piano at a diagonal. Have you seen those back there? Well, those are all hung in there to keep that back from warping and keep it, keep it at a certain tension. It's quite a trick. Well, old man, old man Zudok, first of all, when I came down there, he took one long look at me, and he says, Well, I, uh, I have had a good boy working here. And I said, Oh, <laughs> glad. Well, I, I think you, you'll be all right. Uh, okay, if you, if you learn, if you, just, if you just listen to what I say, and if you work hard. I have to work very hard here because... We have a certain quota, a certain percentage that we have to turn out every day, else Mr. Elsinger down at the end will not have enough backs, and it will be very bad. We have always kept up here. <laughs> I have this is for keeps, you know. <laughs> they, they weren't playing around, and they weren't elves, and they had to turn out the backs. And so... He took me down to the end, way down at the end. We worked at the very end, you see, because, believe it or not, a piano begins with the back, strangely enough. And we were the beginning of the assembly line, this little assembly line with about 45 old men in blue overalls and blue work shirts and who had kind of gray jaws and smoked these funny little pipes and stuff. It was just like out of these pictures, you know, you see. And so he took me down at the end. He said, well, here is where you get, you get the wood now. And when I, when I give you a ticket, I will give you a ticket, and it says number 7B. And when it says 7B, you get the ones from this pile, and if it says 3, number 7B, you will bring back 3, 7B. And you mark on the chart on the wall that you have taken 3, because that is for the inventory. Now, if, on the other hand, we get one that says we want number 2SD, that is the larger one there. Now, that is for our, our new spinet model there. Now, that is over here in a small pile. You will mark it on there, and don't forget to put SD there. Now, I want you to remember all this, because it would be very bad if we do not get the inventory all correct. Yes. All right. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm just... I'm, I'm a human cake of yeast. He is so old, and, and it's so, so foreign. It is, it's, it's, it's not my father, and it's, it's, not, it's not Mr. Settlemeyer. It's something else again. And then finally he takes me back to where he had this big sort of a work table. And as a kid, you know, I had taken shop once <laughs> in grade school. They always, they always teach shop in grade school to kids. And shop is something I had always liked, but this was so different. It was a big, thick table. And it was, it was old, very old, and it had been cut. You know, you could see where saws and things had cut into it, and years and years of shellac had been rubbed into it and hundreds and hundreds of little tiny bits had bored into it until finally this thing looked like a big beehive just covered with a thick coating of, of rubberized stuff just all green and yellow and red and thick and gummy and it was his old workbench and he had this big vise on the side that he would clamp the S curves in and we would drill them from the, from the opposite end and he says, now, well, I will show you first of all now how we will measure this. Is the S curve here? We call we call this the harp or the lyre. Now this goes on the back of the piano. On this, oh, by the way, you must always look carefully at the wood. If you see there is any cracks, you do not do anything with it, but you make a big red X across it and you take it out and show it to Clarence out in the back there and tell him that this is for him. He takes the, all the rejects here. Now, we cannot, we cannot make a mistake, dear. 
Now you measure this way, and you will note here, I have written down a chart here, and you will measure this way, and you will go this way. Now, you will drill four holes here. Okay, four holes. I will show you how to do this. And he takes his, he takes his hand drill, and he goes, Eep! Eep! Oh, straight as a die. Eep! He goes like that. Now, see, you are, now, well, you will take out, you will take out this number seven bit, and you will put in the countersink. Eep! We, uh, See, we have the countersink there now, and that makes that the bolts go right in and are flat. They must be absolutely flat, else the action will not lay flat. It is very important they must be flat. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, would you like to try one? Now, I will watch. Oh, my God. I go over there and I take the S thing, and I... Yeah, yeah, now that is it right. There you have taken the right one there. Now that's number two SD. There is correct now. Now, how, how do you measure that? Now look down at the chart there. See, it says 17 and about half inches there to the first hole off there from the upper right-hand corner. Measuring with this great big T-square, I can hardly lift it. It weighs 900 pounds and it's old and it's... And you can't even read the numbers. They're all ob and worn off, countless hands. It is correct there. And I mark... And I mark the next one. I'm sweating, and he is standing there, and I can smell all that. I can hear Paul down there. I mark the third one, and I lay the thing down. He says, now, it is very important that you hold the, you hold the bit absolutely straight, or else the bolt will go in crooked there. Now, hold it, uh, uh, a little to the left there. Uh, oh, does it go in? Like butter. Oh, boy. Very good, very good. Now, now you must countersink it. Now, now, now is put the countersink. Now, don't forget to tighten the chuck there. Tighten it very good, or else it's liable to hurt you. <coughs> Three of them. Oh, I am beginning to do it. And so he reaches over, he hands me a box of the long screws, and I sink one in, I sink the other, and he says, after it is all done, he says, there. Now look at that. You have you have mounted the S there. You have mounted the the harp. Now, the next thing you do is flip it over, and I will show you how to put on the longitudinal stays. Now, these are very important, because if you do not have the correct, it must be a very correct tension, else it will all warp. It will be a very bad piano. Well, this goes on all afternoon, and I am in a world that I never knew existed. And I can't remember all the stuff he is telling me about the bolts, he is telling me about how you drill, and I'm learning all this stuff, and it seems so simple, you know, you see the back of the piano, there's nothing to it. Then he takes me in the back where, it, where you get the shellac. He takes me in the back where you get the sandpaper, about nine grades of sandpaper, and then, then you have to rub pumice into this, and then you rub sandpaper on it. Then you go on with the cloth, and then finally you come on with the, with the shellac, one coat after the other, until finally you have a back. There is the back. That has a beautiful back. And he stands back, and he looks it over, and they hang it up on a rack so it dries. And there it stands, the first back I have made all afternoon. And he has just been spending time teaching me. Well, I go home that night. And there was Paul and Flick and Bolus. And Bolus, was, his eyes are bulging. He's, he's cross-eyed and everything. And he's just, he's shaken. I don't know whether you know anything about mounting the, the action of a piano. But, but Bolus has just been through hell. And he is sweating. I mean, I could just see that. It, it, and, and by the way, we are an ex-ball team by now. We are just four very worried kids. Very worried. I was a pretty good third baseman when I came out. Came out to that place to get a job. Now I was leaving a complete hulk. 
And I could think all of this stuff. And Schwartz, of course, smelled from head to foot. He smelled with shellac. Schwartz, all day long, had been polishing the tops of spinet pianos. And he, he, he says, I, I, I don't know. And so we ride home on the streetcar, hardly saying a word. I get home, and my mother is waiting. She says, well, how was work? Boy, this is great, Ma. It's really great. Well, did you like it? Tell me about it. Well, it's, uh, it's very, very, very exciting. I was scared. I'm telling you, I never... It's a fantastic feeling of fear. Well, the next day, I arrive. Now, now I'm afraid to go in. And so I do. I go in. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. These old guys, let me tell you, the old men go to work like two hours before work. Something about old men. Very, very, they're very punctual, very conscientious. And they, they work is sort of their life. And they, at home, I could always imagine, because I had a grandfather like that, they live among ferns. And they live, you know, with, with creton covers on, on the tops of day beds. And, and, and radiators that hiss and old ladies that make bread and stuff. But all day long, they are at the piano factory doing what grandpa or uncle does. And so I am, I am with these people, and I am one of them. I came in that next day, and I walked back, and you could, you could see all the old men are still sitting, but they're not working. They're just sitting, and they're putting little things together, and one is getting out some nails, and another guy is, is polishing a knife or something, and they're getting ready for work. They've been here for an hour, these old guys. And finally, it is 8 o'clock. I am back there. Mr. Gutstop says, all right. Mr. Zudok says, go. Go. We will now go. You are going to make the backs, and I am going to handle this. And he, I was supposed to work. I was supposed to go right to work now. Not, not stop, not fool, not, not start, no false starts. I was expected to start making backs of this, this type of upright. He was working on a big grand piano back, a magnificent back. It stretched over an acre and a half. I will work on this one, and if you have any trouble, I wish, wish you would not make a mistake. Do not make a mistake. If you have any trouble, please ask me. Now, I am right over here. Don't be afraid to ask. Oh, don't be afraid to ask. Oh, boy. So, I start working, and it is laborious. Oh, it is laborious. Finally, lunchtime arrives, and it is now maybe noon, exactly on the moment of noon, these old men quit. It is noon, and I have finished about a third of a back. <laughs> I'm still trying to get everything right. I don't, I'm so scared. I don't want to make a mistake. And I, I don't want to step off the line. And old Mr. Zudok says finally, Well, come. We are going to have lunch. Let me see what you have been doing now. Well, that's not bad, dear. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Now, you should, you should, I'll tell you what. You've got to drill him a little lower. You must drill him a little deeper there. You are very, very... Now, you must get a little courage with your drilling there. Now, all the way down. Now, I will show you. Now, we'll, we'll just throw this one out. This one is no good, actually. But we will throw it out, and I will show you how to go. Eep! It goes like that. Eep! I see all the way down. You go like that. We are very fast there. If you do it slow, you always do it crooked. Oh, I'll never learn this. This is just, it's like a nightmare. I, I, I know I'm not making it. It is terrible. And so we all sit outside in the sun, all the old men and about ten young kids, among whom are the four guys I came with, me, were sitting out there eating our tomatoes. I had tomatoes, and I had salami sandwich and a bottle of Coke. And we're sitting out there in the sun, and Bolus is way down at the end, and Paul is sort of in the middle, and Flick is over here next to me, and nobody is saying anything, and the old men are just kind of talking quiet. They have been sitting together like this at lunchtime for a hundred years, these old men. And these old men, it is their world. They know their world. 
and the little factory stops at lunchtime. No sound at all coming from it. And they all sit out there, and the, on the, there was a long shipping platform where the trucks would come and take the pianos, and they'd sit there in the sun, and I'd sit in the sun with them. And, and I'm sitting with, with Flick on one side of me and old Zudok on the other, and Zudok is talking to another old man, and they just sort of ignore us, but yet we're with them, you know? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like a real adult can ignore a kid, but a kid knows he's with this guy, you know? And somehow there was a sense of real security with these old men. And I'm sitting there, and they're sitting there, and we're eating the sandwiches. And we go back, and I start to work. Well, at about, I'd say at about Thursday, it began to happen. I'd say roughly Thursday. I began to have the feeling that I could make backs. I had the feeling that I now knew how to do this. An old man Zudok hardly ever said anything to me. And every day at about 3 o'clock, there would be this fantastic feeling of just almost indescribable boredom. You know, kids hardly ever really experience boredom. You know, a kid is a real free spirit. If he, You know, he is. He can scratch. Or he can look out of the window. Or he can holler. Or he can just stand, you know. Or he can walk around. Or he can lay flat. Or he can have a fit. He can do almost anything. He can break a window. He can do, you know, a kid can, can get people mad in that. But when a kid is working... He can't do any of these things. And we are kids. And we are just fantastically bored. The sun would be out there, and I'm going, eep, eep. And it seems like it has been forever that I'm in this place. It has been going on for weeks and weeks. Actually, I started on Monday. It is now Thursday, and I have been doing this for a year now, it seems. Well, finally, it happens. Friday afternoon, the man from the office comes around, Mr. Elsinger. Mr. They all had German names like that, very strange names. Mr. Elsinger comes around, and he says, uh, You are a shepherd? And I says, Yes. Yeah, shepherd is your paycheck. And he hands me this envelope, and in the envelope is a check. It is the first money that I have ever earned. Real dough, D-E-A-U-X, money. $9.81. They took nine cents out for tax. There it was money. And suddenly it just was great, you know. I didn't mind being here at all. And old Zudok, he gets his check and he doesn't say anything. They, you know, the old man, they and he has, oh, another thing that these old men all had, they all had these old watches. And I began at that time to have a tremendous appreciation of old watches. These old men always had a watch. Every once in a while, old Zudok would pull his watch out of his, out of his overalls. He would pull it out. He had a big, long leather thong that we had. Pull it out and it would be ticking away to... You could hear it all the way through the drill presses and everything. Well, if you have about 20 minutes, Dad, yeah. Now, you go right ahead, Dad. Don't you stop now. And he had a sort of a funny sense of humor, and he knew I was a kid, of course. Well, at the end of the week, it was now the weekend. It was Sunday, and it was great. I was out, and I was playing ball and hollering. But it wasn't the same, you know. You don't go out and play ball when you're a working man, like you used to, you know. So we're out there tossing the ball around, and Flick is out there throwing them around, and Bolas is throwing but we were working stiffs. It was a very different world, you know. And it was not, we were just not kids, really, anymore. And so finally, Monday, oh, like a second later comes, and I'm back there again. I'm going with the drill. And I'm going, oh, every day about, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, oh, I'm sweating. I'm just, oh, just, fant just oh, just indescribable boredom. And at 4.30 would come around, it would be just like, just like somebody had taken a 10,000-pound weight off my back. And Flick and Bolas and Schwartz and me, we'd all go out of the door. Oh, boy. Oh, 
And all Zudok, these old men didn't leave, you know. We would all rush out like mad, and they're all putting little things away, and they're, they're arranging things and pulling shades up and down and pulling down little lights, and, and, and Zudok would walk around, and he would dust off some backs that we had made the day before, and he, they, they just didn't go like we would. We just, whew, out we go, you know, like a, like a bat out of you-know-what. Well, this is where the education began to be very, very, very educational. It was roughly, I'd say, Thursday of the second week. I would be willing to guess that it was Friday, immediately after I got my second check, that the seed began to blossom. It began to germinate. I came home. I get out on the back porch. I get on my old bicycle, which was 275 years old. It was one of the early pole-driven models. I get out there. It was 23rd hand. I start riding around, and suddenly the idea comes to me. I have now got $15. Oh, by the way, my mother from the very beginning said, I must pay $2 a week board now. Since I am doing this work, I must pay my board and keep there. And so I am out there with my bicycle when it suddenly occurred to me that what I ought to do is buy a new bicycle. A new bike. Well, Saturday comes, and I tell my mother and father... I think I might buy a new bike. My mother looks at me and says, Yeah? My old man says, No. My kid brother just stands with his mouth hanging open. I says, Yep. I think I might do it. I'm going to get an Elgin. That's a Sears Roebuck bike. An Elgin bike. Well, one week later, the whole family is down at the Sears Roebuck store on the south side of Chicago, and I am buying a bike. On time. The bike was $37.65. I can remember every penny of it. $37.65. It was two-tone. It was red and white. And it had chrome fenders, aft and bow. It had a small battery case underneath. It had a light on the front, as required by state law. And it was beautiful. A magnificent bicycle. I paid $12 down. Because in the meantime, I had invested heavily in a Boy Scout uniform. I was now down to about 14 cents. And Monday comes, they deliver the bike. Beautiful bike! We put it together that night, and that night I am flying. Oh, it is. have you ever owned something new when you were a kid? Have you ever? That you bought? $10. I bought it. It was mine. I had the whole summer ahead of me. A new bicycle! Great big white rubber handle grips the whole bit, and I'm out there swinging. I'd like to tell you that, well, it doesn't make any difference at this juncture because the education was now fairly complete. All we needed was the denouement, which was not very long coming. Monday came along, and I am back at the old grind. I am drilling, but now I have a purpose. I am drilling because I can hardly wait every day to get out and get on that bike, that fantastic Elgin bike. Tuesday comes, and I'm working like, like a fiend. Wednesday comes, I'm working like a fiend. Thursday comes, I'm working like a fiend, and all of a sudden, looking over my shoulder is Mr. Elsinger. Will you uh, please come to the office, please? And Mr. Zudok looked up and didn't say anything. Just looked. I turned around with Mr. Elsinger. I thought they were going to put me into another department. So I walk all the way down the long aisle. 
between all the other people working. I get to the office, and Mr. Elsinger says, um, we have decided that uh, we are going to get someone else to do your job. We are very sorry. But uh, Mr. Dudock says that you are not fast enough for him, and it's just not very good. We, have, we are going to pay you for the whole week. And he gives me $9.90. And I walk out in the sun, broken. I owe $30. $30. Do you know what $30 is like in the Depression? And I owe it. I am out of work. And I've got $9.90. And I get on the streetcar. And I start going home, and I'm telling you, I'm sweating so I, I'm almost hysterical. I have lost my job, and I own a bicycle. And they gave me a little book. I'm supposed to come and pay them every two weeks. And I've got this book, and it's all full of coupons. And I've got nine ninety, of which $2 already is owed for my board and room. I have $7. I owe them $4 at minuses for my Boy Scout hat. What do I do? All the way home, I am dying. I'm telling you, I'm dying. I, I'm, it's like people are pulling teeth out of me one by one, and they're throwing them in my ears. One by one. I get out of the streetcar. I'm walking home. It is only about 3.30 in the afternoon. I walk up the stairs, and here's my mother. She says, what are you doing, Hall? There's nothing, Ma. Well, what's the matter? Are you sick? What's the matter with you? Come on in and lie down. I'm white as a sheet. I'm about ready to heave. I, I, my stomach is gurgling and bubbling. I, I'm really, I'm sick, I'm telling you. I'm 14 years old, you understand? And I get in the front room and I'm just, I don't know what to do. I can't tell her, you know, the $30. My father is making about $4 a week. And, and you know, it's one of those uh, fantastic things. And I says, Ma, I lost my job. I got no job. She just looked at me and says, That's all right, don't worry about it. And what do you mean, don't worry about it? And that night, my father doesn't say anything. That afternoon, the next day, he pays all of it. And they never once mentioned it. It was the beginning of an education. Yet don't go back. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.